You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning, Providence. How are y'all doing today? Pleasure to greet y'all this morning. My name is Scott Mahan. I am the director of 514 Student Ministries. Thank y'all. Uh, here at Providence, we have a simple vision that is to make the gospel unignorable in our community. And to that end, each and every single week, we open up the scriptures because we believe they are the only way we can know, worship, and obey Jesus. And to that end, today we're going to be continuing our series through Mark called King and Crown, where we study the life of Jesus and we compare it to how our, how our culture tries to find an identity apart from him. And today we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. So if you have your scriptures, go ahead and turn there with me. And uh, if you find yourself without a Bible this morning, that's fine. There should be a black Bible underneath the seat somewhere around you. And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift from us to you. But again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. If you are able, please stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word. Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, <coughs> excuse me, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where are, or excuse me, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and, and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is not of the, uh, excuse me, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after breaking it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. We're really glad you're here. We hope you enjoy yourself, meet somebody. And uh, they can share with you a little bit about who we are and what we're about. Like Scott said, we're continuing our work through the book of Mark. And this morning, I'm going to be talking about the Lord's Supper. uh, And in particular, the institution of the Lord's Supper. I I have to say, right at the outset, it's impossible in a sermon to really get the breadth of what's going on at the Lord's Supper. And so I'm going to be focusing thematically on what is the book of Mark trying to communicate um, in, in relation to the theme of the entire book, the entire gospel of Mark. And that's going to be my focus. So just a heads up, I'll try to do what I can to kind of pick out portions, but ultimately we won't be able to really encompass everything that has to be said about the Lord's Supper. There's so much there. But before we do jump in, what I'd like to do is pray. I want to ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. And so if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us and then we'll just, we'll just dive right in. Father, we humble ourselves before you. We are so grateful that your word has been preserved for us. We come now and we ask, would you minister to us? Would you prepare our hearts as soil is prepared for sowing? 
Help us to receive from you, my God, because every good and perfect gift comes down from you. You know us, and you know us in ways that we do not even know ourselves, and so we ask that you would meet not only our known needs, but those needs that hide beneath the surface. Would you minister to us now and help us to receive that ministry and not be obstinate, not refuse it. Help us to take our seat at your table and find nourishment in the person and the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open up our spiritual eyes to see and our ears that we might hear. And God, that it might produce a 30, a 60, a hundredfold harvest according to your will and your desire, what you desire from us. We ask that you would do that. And we pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Now, I want to start by just going through this first stanza, this uh, verses 12 through 16. I'm going to read it, and then I want to focus on two things. One's kind of on the surface obvious, uh, but nobody really wants to talk about it, and the other is more Old Testament allusion. So let's go verses 12 through 16. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And there they prepared the Passover. So obviously, if you were here with us last year as we worked through the book of Exodus, you know that there are these feasts that God had given the children of Israel to rehearse, to practice yearly. Two of those are mentioned here really in one line, namely the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. Now really, they're kind of overlapping feasts. They were to be observed by the Israelites in memorial to what happened in Egypt when the Israelites were brought out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and into the wilderness and ultimately the promised land that God had made for them. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread was that they would eat bread that was not leaven being yeast, it was unleavened, unyeasted bread for seven days. And the idea, the symbolism here is you are in such haste, you are so ready for God to call you out of the land that you don't have time to let the bread rise from the east. That's the idea. They didn't put yeast because you need to be ready at Passover. You were to stand at the ready and when God said go, you were going to go. That's the idea of unleavened bread. Now there's more than that, but not less than that. And then of course you have the Passover lamb, which if you remember, the final plague that God had brought to the land of Egypt was that he would kill every firstborn in every house. Again, not just of the Egyptians, but of every house that did not have the blood of the Passover lamb spread on the doorpost of the household. Now, we know that Israel listened to God, believed God, and therefore their firstborns were not killed, but it wasn't on the basis of their ethnic heritage. It was on the basis of the blood of the lamb that was over their doorpost, that the death angel would come by in the night and he'd pass over their house, hence the name, the Feast of Passover. So here we see that Jesus on the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as we would expect him to be, is fulfilling his legal duties and requirements to be there, to eat of the feast, to do what a Jewish man was called by God to do. And he's celebrating both feasts. But it's more than that. 
this hasty departure from Egypt, this lamb that is slain, we know that obviously is fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the true Passover lamb. Christ is the unleavened bread. Um, The bread of affliction is what the Jews called it. Well, Christ is the bread of affliction. And he's teaching his disciples to make ready for this departure, not from Jerusalem, but this departure out of an old kingdom and into a new kingdom, out of an old covenant and into a new covenant, out from underneath the tyranny, not of Pharaoh, not of Caesar, but of Satan's sin and death, and into a new kingdom where Christ rules and reigns. They would no longer be not Pharaoh's slaves, not Caesar's slaves. No, they would no longer be the slaves to sin. But everyone's a new creation in Christ. That's what we read 2 Corinthians 5 this morning. That's what's going on here. Now we get this most readily in Luke's account because he literally looks to the disciples at this moment when he's preparing the Passover meal and he gives them the Lord's Supper and he says, I give to you a kingdom. He's handing them the new kingdom that they are meant to steward. Now that's kind of on the surface, uh, or maybe a little bit more Old Testament allusion, but what is on the surface that we kind of ignore out of this passage is, what about the weird Jack Ryan CEO clandestine stuff that's going on here? Like Jesus saying, here's what you're going to do, go into the city. When you get to the city, man's carrying a jar of water, follow him. Get to the end of that road, go into, the ha- go into this place, say, the master has need of his room. The guy will say, gotcha, take you upstairs. The room will be fully furnished. That's where you prepare it. They show up and it happens exactly like they said. Here's the thing that you struggle with if you just look at it on the surface. Jesus has never said, or at least spoken of in the gospels, to have been conspiring with any well-connected people. Like he has conversations with Nicodemus who we consider to be well-connected at night. They're not exactly... Uh, battle plan nights. Jesus is talking to him about being born again, challenging him on his theological understanding of the word. So where is it that Jesus all of a sudden turns into born, you know, Jason born, and he's able to guide them in these, this is not the first time, by the way, remember the triumphant entry. He says, hey, when you get into the city, go to this house. When you get to this house, there will be a donkey tied to a, tied to a pole. Take the donkey. If they ask you, why are you doing that? Say, the master has need of it and they'll let you go. Now, every Texan would say, never would you try that at somebody's house. You take their farm animals and they say, I need it. That's how you get shot, you know? The disciples go, they take the donkey. The owner comes out and says, why are you stealing my donkey? The master has need of it. And they say, oh, okay. And they go, they do it. Well, suffice it to say that we can surmise Jesus is opening their eyes to something that's deeper than merely the Passover itself, namely his prophetic office, his kingly office, everything is prepared and furnished at the command of the word of Jesus. This is what we see. John tells us this. It's hearkening us to creation. It's hearkening us to Genesis. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ at his word, everything obeys. What do you mean by everything? I mean the fish will swim into the nets. I mean the seas will calm in the middle of a storm. At the word of Christ, things are. And here Christ is calling them to that. But there's something even deeper. He's setting the disciple, for the disciples an expectation of the events that are about to unfold. He shows them how he and his divine hand 
is in control of even where they'll have Passover so that they will know that as everything starts to unravel before their eyes, he is in control there too. What will proceed from this moment is the ministry of the Lord Jesus on earth will look like it's being destroyed moment by moment, point by point. And Jesus wants his disciples to know all by the divine hand of providence, this is coming to pass. No mistakes, no accidents, no coincidences. It all begins with a table being set at the instruction of the master, a feast being prepared. Now this should hearken us back to Eden because if nothing else, this is what, how the Bible starts. God creates the heavens and the earth. The Bible records within the first few days, God makes everything that is necessary for mankind to live and flourish before he ever creates mankind themselves. Man is the last thing created. And I say man, male and female. Really, Eve is the last thing that's created from the side of Adam. But they show up to a fully furnished cosmos. They show up to a feast that's already been prepared. They don't show up to avoid that they must do something in order to prepare their food. God brings them to a banquet in the Garden of Eden and sets before them the feast of Look at the creation that God has made, and he's made it for what? For his glory and for our good. That's the book of Genesis. That's what it tells us. And then Jesus here does the same thing as a reminder of the goodness of God. He tells the disciples not, hey, you need to go to this, this store and this shop to get this food, and you need to barter with this person to hope that we can get this room and make sure we have enough money in the treasury. No, he says, go to this place. It's already prepared. Just set the tables. It's already furnished. And he does this because he is setting us up for what is to come. In the same way that in Genesis there was the creation and God sets up Adam as his vice regent of this kingdom of the earth, Jesus is setting up now a new creation and a new kingdom where he will give those keys over to his own disciples to go out and declare this message to all of the known creation that the king has come. Now, Let's go to the next few verses and see what Jesus is setting up, starting in verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. As a side note, this is not how to set the mood at your dinner parties. (laughs) Jesus gets together, says they're really excited about this meal. One of you guys is a snake. Verse 19, they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now this moment is Jesus sitting with his friends, but it's typifying sitting with a sort of spiritual sonship, and betrayed by his own son, one of them will be the one who, with a kiss, will betray the Lord Jesus. Judas Iscariot is the most infamous character in the New Testament, perhaps apart from Satan himself, right? Human character, Judas Iscariot gets the top of the infamous list. The Bible never excuses Judas. I want you to notice here, it gives a serious recounting of Judas's treachery What does the Bible say 
The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better that he was never born. Notice two things are happening here. It is written that this will be so. It will be so. By the providential hand of God, this will come to pass. And yet it doesn't completely excuse Judas. It says, but it'd be better if he was never born. Woe to this man. Now I want want to point out also the response of the other disciples. And it gives us an indication into the purpose that Judas serves at the Passover meal. Notice, as Jesus tells the disciples, one of you will be a betrayer, they don't do what you and I probably would have done, namely to say, which one of you snakes is it? Right? Anybody else? Is it just me? You'd be looking around kind of side-eyed, be like, okay, I've been thinking maybe somebody here was squirrely. Which one of you is the squirrel, you know? No, they all say, is it me? Is it I? One by one, they say, is it me? They have been with Jesus for three and a half years now and have grown to understand the very nature of sin and their own weakness, so much so that they knew they had what was within them to fall short and betray the Lord, even though they did not desire to. It's kind of an incredible moment. And this is essential for us to know too as disciples, as Ty mentioned last week, what's the difference between Peter and Judas at its fundamental core? And it is not some innate goodness in Peter that allows him to rise to be the the head of the first among equals of the early church. No, it's merely one thing, repentance and faith that did not reside in Judas. Peter repented of his denials and Judas did not. So Judas typifies something that's greater than merely his own personal treachery. He typifies something that, again, to go back to the beginning, Judas is a type of Adam. He's showing us this type of thievery and revolution against God. With one hand in the dish, Judas puts his hand in with the Lord, and with the other hand, he seeks to supplant him. He's a double-minded, double-hearted man. You might say double-tongued man like the serpent who with a forked tongue. Da Vinci's famous painting, you guys have probably seen this, depicts the moment where Jesus tells the disciples that one of them will betray. And what you see is, interestingly, Judas is holding the money bag, which Da Vinci's showing you what is, where his heart really lies. And then Peter is sitting to the right and John to his left, and Peter leans across behind Judas to whisper into John's ear in the painting, asking John who it is that would betray the Lord, because as the Gospels say that John was the beloved, and in one of the Gospel uh, writings says that Jesus whispered into the ear of the one who was at his right, that Judas would be the one. And so Peter, as is typical of Peter, is trying to get in to the information in Da Vinci's painting, tell me who it is. But one of the things that's often missed is a foreshadowing in Da Vinci's painting, namely that as Peter leans behind Judas and Judas holds the money bag, Peter has a sword in his hand behind his back. Now we know that Peter will tell Jesus soon, I will go even to death with you. And we know that he means it because he cuts the servant of the high priest's ear off. Peter's so angry, perhaps he might want to kill the man who would betray the Lord Jesus who's among them. But there's a deeper meaning to Da Vinci putting a sword in the hands of Peter. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Peter, being as angry at Judas as he is, will commit the same type of sin by betraying the Lord Jesus three times, prophesied by Christ himself. In other words, Da Vinci's giving us this 
picture that Peter himself is capable of betraying in the same way as Judas, which gives us an indication that Paul's right in Romans chapter 3 when he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, or another way to put it would be, all of humanity has taken the side of the revolutionary serpent. All of humanity finds themselves like Judas in this scene. And it's not coincidental, I think, that our first parents betrayed God at a meal with the snake. They ate of the fruit of the tree with the serpent. Now, what I see here is bigger than just this word picture, but there's a prominent Christian doctrine, and you will not, you'll find that not coincidentally, we named the church after it, <laughs> um, the providence of God is at work here. Perhaps you could see this here more than anywhere else in all of the scriptures is every time the disciples would get up to preach, they would preach that by the mighty hand of God, Christ was crucified, which seems kind of backwards. Why would this most terrible thing also be God's main thing that he did in the world? Well, because it was through the terrible suffering that he brought about the salvation of mankind. But I want to read to you from the New Theological Dictionary what providence means. It says this, providence is the beneficent outworking of God's sovereignty whereby all events are directed and disposed to bring about those purposes of glory and good for which the universe was made. Now watch, he continues on. These events include the actions of free agents, which while remaining free, personal and responsible, are also the intended actions of those agents. Providence thus encompasses both natural and personal events, setting them alike within the purposes of God, close quote. Let me give you layman's terms here. Providence is the understanding that the divine hand of God orders the world and that you and I are making meaningful, regular, free decisions based on our own both mixed up desires to do both good and evil And God, in his divine purposes, will shape and mold the world according to his plans. In other words, you get Judas, you get the cross, and you get the resurrection all by the providence of God. And Judas is not excused in this moment because he did this not only by the divine hand of God, but because he desired to do it. The mystery. But here we see, maybe most important of all, that God and his providence has directed this scene to play out exactly as it will. Now, why is this important for us is before we talk about the Lord's Supper. Well, I think it's essential before we talk about the Lord's Supper because it teaches us not just a theological doctrine we should agree with, that yeah, it's true, but that we should apply and live by. In every iteration of your life, ups and downs, laughing and weeping, rejoicing and lamenting, feasting and fasting, the mighty hand of God's providence is at work to bring glory to God and to bring joy to his children. Each of us have been dealt a hand that if we thought about it for long enough, if we critically surveyed it long enough with enough scrutiny, we could be convinced that we should just fold and not play at all. We could bemoan the world that we live in, the degrading things that we see all around us because most assuredly we see them. We could wish for a day that was more like our childhood. I'm sure you've done this recently, wishing that maybe your kids could grow up in a world like you grew up in. I know I've done that. 
And we'd be right to say and to groan over the sin that's so readily not just accepted, but celebrated in our culture. Each of us could probably wax poetically in detail about the hardships that we've been forced to endure, whether they be family hardships or hardships with our kids or finances or jobs or health or friendships or marriages or betrayal or untimely deaths and on and on and on I could go. And here's the thing, most of it would even be true. I mean, there's always a few of us that are just tall tale spinners that want of, you know, people to feel bad for us. So we, you know, we kind of church it up a little bit. Our lives are a little bit worse than maybe they actually were. But most of the things we'd say would be true. And yet, what is factually true about our circumstances in life and what we are called to do about it are two entirely different discussions. The Last Supper leading to the cross of Christ is the best example of the most unjust betrayal the most unfair suffering that any human being has ever suffered since the beginning of the world, and it is not close. Christ suffered unjustly, and that is the most euphemistically I can put it. Not only did he not deserve the suffering, he deserved all the honor, all the glory, all the praise. And yet, what do we see prominently that God of the universe, on the night that he's betrayed, what does he want the storyline, the prominent headline to read? It occurred by the providence of God. That's what he wants us to remember. Yes, the free agency of man was also involved, but being shaped by the mighty hand of God, that as Christ groaned on the cross, he wants you to know, this is a part of the plan, keep going. Trust me. Now, you might be saying, Court, are you trying to convince me to ignore my hardship, pretend it's not real, abandon my mourning? And I'll say, no, by no means. Lament is, in fact, commanded by God. Hear me what I'm saying. Bitterness, complaining, despondency, destructive malice should have no place among the Christian people of God. It's not our heritage that we receive from the Lord. He shows us here how perfectly he approaches his trials and he gives us an example. We should approach our suffering with courage and with grace, but most of all, with faith that the providence of God is being worked out even as we suffer. God is going to win for his glory and our good. Don't you love that Jesus just states it as a fact at dinner that He's going to be betrayed by one of his friends. He just gets to dinner and says, one of you is going to betray me. Now we know that Jesus has the ability to see the beginning from the end. And so we're saying, well, yeah, of course Jesus can do that, but we can't do that. But I think he's giving us an indication of how we ought to state in hindsight about our suffering. What do I mean? Namely, that we could look back at everything that has happened. Christians should be able to, at some point, after they have mourned and lamented that which is evil and that which is dark, to look back and say, this is according to the purpose and plan of God for his glory and my good, and it will turn. We should be able to say it as matter-of-factly as Jesus said, one of you will betray me. Why? Because we can see the future? No. But in a sense, we do know the future, do we not? We don't know the outcome of every battle. We just know the outcome of the war has been settled. And in so doing, we can say, even if we be losing this battle, the war's been won. And so it will turn to our good. Now you may be saying that's a really motivational thing to say, Court. No, it's not just merely motivational. This is how our spiritual ancestors viewed the world. And it's not a 
a good idea on how you should think in order to be more successful at your job. It's a commandment from the, from the Lord your God to think this way. Job knew that there was no wisdom in receiving blessing from God if he could not also receive the suffering. with the same faithful heart that he received the blessing. This way of thinking is our heritage. It's a heritage of nobility that we receive as inheritors of Christ's kingdom. Think of it like this. You are expected to live this way because you are kings and queens of his kingdom. You can almost hear through the pages of the scriptures our spiritual ancestors saying to us, do not linger over what should have happened or over what could have happened. Because if you do, you will most assuredly miss the beauty of what will happen. And what will happen is redemption, restoration. Jesus is asked by his disciples as he comes across a paralytic man or a leper. And he says, is it because of this man's sins or his father's sins that he is this way? And Jesus says, neither, but that the glory of God may be shown. This is how Christ teaches us to see suffering through the lens of the providence of God. He is sick that he might be healed. He is sick that God's glory might be shown. Now, what am I advocating for? Christian remembrance. Christian remembrance is a virtue. And it means a spiritual reflection that the providential hand of God has been and will always be working throughout all of history, and hear me, including your personal history. And the more personal history that you have knowing and seeing the providential hand of God at work in and through your life, the stronger your faith will be moving forward even through trials. There's something about this Christian remembrance that gives us light in the darkest of situations. It gives us strength to face the suffering that we endure. Think of it like this. What does the Bible tell us to do? Remember the saints of old. Like what? Joseph's slavery in Egypt? Yes, of course. But not just Joseph's slavery, but God's exaltation of Joseph through his slavery to the second to Pharaoh. Should we remember Israel being enslaved to Egypt? Yes, of course. But we don't just remember their slavery. We remember their redemption in the Exodus, the Red Sea being parted, God feeding them in the wilderness. We don't just remember hunger, we remember manna from heaven. We don't just remember the Israelites shaking in their boots as the Philistines bear down on them. We remember David, the little shepherd boy, mounting up with a slingshot and defeating the great Goliath. Christian remembrance does not ignore suffering, it just highlights redemption. And this is how we ought to think. It provides us with informed faith, not blind faith. We don't believe that our God is true because we simply want it to be true. We believe that our God's promises are true because he has proven himself over and over and over again. And we have the written evidence of it. And the longer that you live as a Christian, my prayer for you is that you would not only have written evidence in the Bible that you hold, but you'd have written evidence on your heart because you've experienced it. Now, there's an antitype to this kind of Christian remembrance that it seeks to enslave you. And I want to give this warning. The antitype to Christian remembrance is cynical brooding. By this, I mean it's a way of looking at history, even your own personal life, that's shaded only by suffering and hardship with no redemption. Think of it like a kind of selective memory that only ever sees betrayal but never reconciliation. It only sees slavery but never freedom. It only sees hunger, but never manna from heaven. It only sees wars. It never sees peace. 
It's a kind of selective memory that ignores the mighty hand of God's providence, but it broods about the world that God made that is so unfair. It's seductive because it operates not on outright lies, it operates in half-truths. Because if I know you without knowing you, I'm certain that you have had suffering in your life, as well as laughter. And if I can prey upon the suffering, it'll connect with you in a unique way because you know that, yes, this is true of me, but it ignores the laughter. It ignores the redemption. Now, why would the enemy desire for you to brood like this? Well, because if you brood like this long enough, you can rewrite history to make it void of color, void of laughter, void of love, and ultimately void of God. And that's his aim that you live in a world where there's only suffering and there's never hope. And to crush a person's hope is to crush a person entirely. To take away your very life. And that is what Satan has come to do, steal and to kill and to destroy. But what does Jesus do here at the Last Supper? Let's agree, the Last Supper could have been remembered mostly for betrayal. It could have been remembered mostly for Judas. Well, Jesus includes it. He doesn't leave it out. All the gospel writers decide to include it, meaning that Christianity is not a religion that ignores suffering. It is not a religion that says we come to Christ so that we would not suffer. No, in fact, Christianity embraces and understands suffering is a part of life. It is a reality we all grapple with. This is important, but it doesn't stop there. In fact, at the core of Christianity, it's through the suffering that redemption comes. Our God came in our place and suffered for us. There is no other religion that explains human suffering in a way that has God coming down from his throne and enduring the suffering in our place for our sins. And this is what Christianity offers. And here in this moment, when Jesus could have made the main thing about his betrayer, what does he do? With his mighty pen, he writes the headline, not remember Judas, but remember Jesus. He wants us to remember redemption on the night of the betrayal, not the betrayal. Let's finish up by reading verses 22 through 25. As they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until that day come when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. Now there's so much to be said, but I don't have time to say it all. The idea of being invited to the table, starting with Genesis, continues on in the Bible. Abraham is met by Melchizedek in the wilderness and he has broken bread and wine and blesses Abraham. Later we find out that it's through this priesthood of this mysterious man Melchizedek that Christ is a priest for us. Israel's brought to the table in Exodus, not just to the Passover table in Egypt, but they're brought to the wilderness where God prepares a table before them in the midst of their enemies all around. He gives them manna from heaven and water from the rock. The first king of Israel, Saul, is called to Samuel's table where he gives him meat and bread and drink to inaugurate the first king. The prophet Isaiah tells a messianic prophecy that Jesus will later quote in John chapter 6 where he says, come and eat And drink without price. Why do you labor for food that does not satisfy and drink that can't quench your thirst? Come to me and I'll feed you. You see, Jesus invites his disciples to the table here and he tells them in the book of Luke, long have I desired to have this dinner with you. I want you to picture yourself here with the disciples. For thousands of years, the Lord Jesus has waited to have this meal. 
And he says, I've been waiting for this moment for a very long time. Interestingly, one of the people that's supposed to be there with him to eat the dinner betrays him. But that's key. It's essential. It's telling you. You and I have no business at the table because we're betrayers. And the entire dinner itself is built around what? Broken body, shed blood, so that betrayers get to come back to the table. Treasonous people get to come back to their father's table. They get to come back and eat with their father who loves them, even though we have that same DNA, that same sinful brokenness that our first parents do. Christ changes us into a new creation, no longer under the federal headship of Adam, but under Christ, new blood, that we drink the cup that represents this new blood that's in us, this new body that we are a part of. And all the traitors get to have a seat at the table now as sons and daughters, kings, queens. It's incredible. We have union with Christ every time we eat of the communion bread. This was the point of the eat my flesh and drink my blood that Jesus said in John 6. Every time we come to the table, we eat and drink together. We unite our, in our faith with Christ, meaning that whatever his fate is, our fate will be. You know why Paul always says we died with Christ and so we will rise with Christ? I want you to think this through in all of its analogies. We drink and we united in a death like his. We are dead to sin. We rise again. This is what baptism is, by the way. We rise again in newness of life, a new creation. But guess what? That continues. Where he is ascended, seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places. Guess where you and I are headed? United with him. It's coming for us. That's why the the Lord's table is both a current reality, a celebration, and it's a future hope. Jesus said, I will not take of this meal again until I eat it in the kingdom. What does he mean? I'm doing this supper. It's not the last supper, by the way. This is the first supper. 2,000 years we've been having this supper since this first one. The last supper's coming. And he says, I will, not, I will not eat and drink of it again until I eat it in the new kingdom. One day, friends, we are going to be with Christ long as he desired to have that meal. And we'll be welcomed in to take our seat amongst him. It's not just union with Christ. It's union with one another. We're members together of the body of Christ. Each week we take and we have this new unity in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Just as the triune God is both distinct and one, we are all distinct and yet one in Christ with shared laughter, shared sorrow, shared future, shared hope, the people of God. I want you to think about King Arthur and his merry men around the table. This is us. We have thrown in our lot with the king and we eat and drink to toast of allegiance to him. We do it weekly, no matter what may come, No matter what suffering we deal with, we come back together and say, our future's bright, we're with the king. Our future's with him. Luke 22 tells us that Jesus said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And I want to close with 2 Timothy. You could see it in verse 19 there, but I want to read 2 Timothy 2. And I want to read verses 8 through 13. Listen to what Paul says about remembering. He says, remember Jesus Christ. How should we remember him? Risen from the dead, the offspring of David. So two things, risen king. That's how we remember him, risen king. As preached in my gospel, what is Paul doing? For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. If you wanna know how Paul can talk like that in jail and why we struggle with our sufferings, it's not because Paul is somehow uniquely not human. It's because he remembers Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, 
risen king. It's on his mind. It's at the forefront of his mind. He is not ruminating through cynical brooding. He is remembering like a Christian ought to remember. The king is alive. I serve him. I'm going to be with him. The word of God's not bound, even though I'm bound. He continues, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. How do you do that, Paul? Because I remember Jesus Christ, that they may also attain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's his last saying. He says, this saying is trustworthy. If we've died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Then he has this one. If we deny him, he'll deny us. That seems to be a Judas reference. If you don't take your seat and you choose another seat, then you won't have a seat. If we're faithless though, meaning we struggle, he remains faithful. How? For he cannot deny himself. He may deny you that seat that you've rejected, but here's what you cannot do. Change the character of the unchangeable God. He'll always be faithful. He'll always be true. He'll always be good. Why does Christian remembrance give you the strength and joy that it gives you? Because you are remembering the king who does not change and has always fulfilled his promise. And every example that you have only further bolsters this reality for you. And friends, I want to encourage you, if you don't have this history with Christ, you need to practice this more. Because my guess is that you've fallen into cynical brooding more, more readily than you're willing to admit. If you only remember the bad things in your history, my guess is that you haven't remembered that you woke up this morning. That you had food this morning. That we're worshiping God freely with lights and air condition that I always want more of and girls you always want less of in this room. My guess is that you've forgotten all of the many blessings, the good, the perfect gifts that come down from the Father of lights. You have forgotten those things because you have become what Christ has warned us against and what the enemy loves to encourage in us. Namely, that we would remember our history only in the shades of suffering, never in the light of redemption. Some of you are in the middle of that right now. You haven't seen the other end of the light. Let me tell you, that's why you need to remember now all the more so that you can stand up and say, this will turn out for my good. Paul in Philippians says, I'm in jail right now. He says, I am convinced this will turn out for my deliverance. And he goes, listen, he has no reason to believe that. They're killing Christians. Why would he think that? And you know what he says? Whether by life or by death, my Christ will be honored in my body. This is going to turn out well for me. Friends, that's because he's done his work remembering who Jesus is for him. And we also ought to do so. Well, how do you do that? Well, good news is I've already, not I, but we've developed at Providence every single week a way for you to do this. And we didn't even make it up. We just read about it. The Lord's Supper is Christ's way of rejuvenating us in this way. It's, it's that, why do we do it every week? People say, that's just so religious. It doesn't, it's, it's not meaningful. It takes the heart away from it. The exact opposite. This is you actually developing a pattern in your own soul, like grooves on the highway. Like if you have a dirt road and you drive the same path every single day, it develops grooves so much so that you know the right way to go because you've driven it a million times. Even so, this develops the grooves in your soul to, to lead you back to Christian remembrance because you've done it how often? Every week. Every week. We get together and we take of the, of the body and the blood of Jesus and we do what? We reflect. I want you guys to think of this. You take your seat amongst the heavenly host at the table of the Lord every single week. A seat that was prepared for you, furnished for you by the blood of Jesus and you did nothing to earn it. Your name's on the seat and everything and he wrote it. He etched it with his own blood. 
and you take that seat and you remember the Lord Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we receive the blessing. Not the blessing that we've earned, but the blessing that we've been given. I want to encourage you this morning. I I don't know who may be suffering, who may be struggling, but I can be pretty confident that all of us will have and will continue to have those days. And so I tell you, as Paul told Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of Abraham. Let me pray. Father, we confess to you that often we are spiritually forgetful as we partake now of your table. And as we're led through the words in Isaiah, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you do something sacred and holy in our hearts that you might, as you have been, each time we take of your table, would you deepen the grooves in our heart that lead us back to you? Turn our eyes away from merely seeing the darkness and see the light that is in the face of your son, Jesus Christ. And Holy Spirit, give us the peace to know that we find sustenance, we find satisfaction, we find wholeness as we take and partake of your table. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.